Good afternoon, New York, and the rest of our listeners around the globe. My name is June Stoyer, and I'm the host of the Organic View Radio Show. Our podcast is available on iTunes, Zoom, and you can also visit our website at www.theorganicview.com. If you'd like to be on the show or would like to find out about sponsorship opportunities, please contact us at questions at theorganicview.com. Today's show is sponsored by Eden Foods, the most trusted name in certified organic clean food. When you shop online at EdenFoods.com, enter the coupon code ORGVIEW to receive 20% off any regularly priced items, excluding cases. For other promotional offers, please visit TheOrganicView.com's website. And don't forget to check out our contest section. Today my guest is Rachel Kaplan, who is one of the authors of Urban Homesteading. There are many people that live in the city or even in the suburbs that talk about escaping their crowded community for the charmed life of the country with the intentions of having their own, quote, organic farm or simply changing things in their own home environment. While this may seem like the thing to do, especially since there is so much need for each and every person to play their part, it's not necessarily the easiest transition to make. Especially when it comes to farming, it's not that simple. There are no Farming 101 college courses or single reference points that can actually tell you all that you need to know as far as how to manage all the responsibilities that farm life requires. However, there is a great deal of information that is available as far as different options for creating your own sustainable and earth-friendly environment. The main thing is to make a decision and to learn as much as you can before you take the plunge. Even if you don't necessarily want to have a farm, but you still want to do something as simple as creating a compost bin or starting your own vegetable garden, you still need the right information so that your time and money are well spent. In the book Urban Homesteading, authors Rachel Kaplan and Kay Ruby Bloom discuss everything you really need to know from how to make a compost toilet, starting a container garden, recycling gray water, to 31 uses for beeswax, which was my personal favorite, and so much more. So whether you're interested in starting your own organic farm or just want to do things more sustainably and responsibly in your own backyard, this is really a great book to read. So I would like to welcome to the show Ms. Rachel Kaplan, who is one of the authors of Urban Homestead. Good afternoon, Rachel, and welcome to The Organic View. Hi, thanks so much. Uh, Rachel, can you tell our audience about yourself and how you wound up working with Ruby Bloom to write this book. Sure. I am. I live in Northern California. I'm a mom of a 10-year-old and a psychotherapist by trade. And uh, Ruby is a very old friend of mine. We've known each other about 25 years. And over the time we've known one another, we both evolved from being working community-based artists into being urban homesteaders. And a couple of years ago, I approached Ruby and said, would you like to write a book with me about this? And we decided we were going to do it and really took a look at what we were doing in our own lives, on our own homesteads, and sort of what was happening in the urban homesteading movement in this country and really honed in on what we thought were the essentials to the lifestyle and started writing about it. And what a book it is. I mean, the pictures, how long did it take you to put this together? The pictures in here are really great. Yeah, the pictures are beautiful. Ruby was the visual artist, the visual wizard of the book, so she took many, many of the photographs, and then we gathered photographs also from other people in our respective communities who'd taken pictures of the projects they were doing, and sometimes we went out and said, oh, we need a picture of this, and we made it happen. So that that took that took some time to, to select and to do, and the whole project took about a year and a half from the start to the finish. 
And folks, if you have, uh, if you, if you're thinking about doing something in your own yard, especially an activity that would involve your family, the book has so much information, and it's very kid friendly. I mean, the the, the pictures. Uh, I know kids really are intrigued, especially by so many wonderful pictures that are in here. And uh, it's always great to get your kids involved because, lo and behold, you have instant help. But also, yep. <laughs> when the kids are involved, it's amazing how they will really keep at it if you you explain the importance of what it is that you're doing. I know with compost bins especially, if you teach kids about why composting is so such a great thing to do, they will really keep after it, and especially if you give them the opportunity, say if you have a worm bin, to name the worms. Uh, you know that every time they pick up a new worm, they're going to have a new name, of course, but uh, it makes it more of a fun activity as opposed to just something that's that's a chore. Now, speaking of compost, uh, compost bins, uh, one of the most popular questions that I'm actually asked as a master composter is, how do you start your own composting uh, composting toilet? And uh, you wrote quite a bit of information in here, and um, it's it's a subject that at first um, some people will say, oh, I don't want to do that, but when you think about it, why not? Well, even more, um, there's many good reasons why to do it. We're basically flushing our waste into the municipal water system where they take a lot of energy to be cleansed or they're being flushed out to sea. And the truth is that our human waste, just like other animal waste, are actually really can be um, composted down and can be put in the soil and put fertility back into the soil. So it's actually of great benefit if we safely compost our own waste and put it back into the garden and close that loop instead of sending things out outside of where we live, outside of our home sites, and recycling them, putting them back into the earth is a much healthier wiser choice and there are simple ways to do that for sure you have to have your thinking cap on you know there are reasons why um, there have been laws about how people manage their waste there are some health concerns and hygiene concerns but there are also simple ways to set up um, a two bucket system where you deposit um, number one in one bucket and number two in the other and compost them down over time and then can return them to the soil how long have you had your own compost toilets? Um, Ruby and I both have simple, rudimentary, two-bucket systems, and I've used mine for about um, about a year. And I will say that my family, including my daughter, they do not use it. They're not interested. <laughs> they use the regular toilet, but I do my thing my way, and they do their thing that way. And, um, we, yeah, we are, we're using them. Um, yeah, we use them. So for about a year, a couple of years for Ruby, I think. I know, uh, especially my family. Uh, my family's kind of divided. I think half of them think I'm, I'm completely nuts, and the other half are completely supportive. But uh, it's funny the um, the part of the family that uh, you know they just kind of go with the flow. All of their friends and neighbors tune into the show, so I think that's uh, kind of amusing. But with the compost toilet. It is such a popular thing, especially uh, with, with um, people that not only live in the country, but uh, even in um, 
the suburbs. It's amazing how many people are beginning to embrace this whole concept. And you have an absolutely beautiful picture of a compostable or a compost toilet that's inside the home. Yeah, you can. Where we, where um, that picture is taken in Oakland, and in Oakland, I believe the law is that in a house, if you have one ordinary toilet that um, flushes through the um, municipal system, you can. You only need to have one in a house. So in that particular house, they left one toilet and took out the other, and they built a throne and they set it up so that the waste drops down from that bathroom down underneath the house into a space where you can get to, and the pee and the poo are separated at the toilet and then put into two different buckets and then the urine can be diluted and put straight on the compost bin and then the bucket of poop can be um, you layer it with carbon matter and you let it sit in a place where no one's going to disturb it for three to six months six months I would say safely and as it um, it composts down it transforms um, and then you have dirt basically and let's just explain some basic concepts to people that are still shaking their heads saying, okay, these two ladies are absolutely off their rocker. Uh, now, for those people that don't understand what Rachel's talking about, the carbon matter could be anything from sawdust to, I mean, anything, anything that um, what we try to teach people is anything that's dry that can absorb the moisture. Um, and what what do you think is the best uh, material to use when it comes to uh, a, a, a compostable toilet? I think wood shavings are probably the best material to use, dry wood shavings. And especially here in New York where we just we're still cleaning up after Hurricane Irene, I'm sure many people have a surplus of wood that they can easily grind up into sawdust and... Uh, I think it's a great way to utilize the wood, especially since most people are cringing at the thought of paying so much money to haul away these trees. Right. Uh, you know, I think that's a perfect solution. So, um, you know, folks, hey, you, if you have the materials, find a way to use them. Yeah, uh, one of the things we think about on the homestead is, is how do we use what we have around us instead of sending it out to the landfill or to the, to you know, off-site, how do we use what we have to new purpose so that we're closing the loops in the system so that everything is either repurposed, reused, or recycled back into the system. So that's a great example of that. There's trees that are down. You don't want to pay someone to haul them off and throw them away. So how can you use them? And just out of curiosity, how long did it take you to build your toilet? Because I'm actually contemplating... Well, you know, you can you can do you can make if you have more land, you can build yourself a, a very beautiful three bin composting toilet. There's a man named Joseph Jenkins who wrote a book called The Humanure Handbook, and he has plans and designs for how to build an outdoor composting toilet. It can be quite elaborate, but what I did was I got a five gallon bucket and a medical toilet seat at a recycle store and I sit on the seat and I put mm. into the bucket. So it, it didn't take any time and it didn't cost me really anything. It, you know, five dollars for the toilet seat. So how much it can how be much super money simple. How much money would you say you save in water? And electricity well, for that matter. Well we do a lot of water saving, which is really important here in California where we really don't have enough water, unlike on the East Coast where you have 
tons and tons of water. So we we recycle the water that we use from the laundry as well as the shower. And our water bill is it's pretty low. There's a three-tiered system in our water bill, and we're always at the lowest end of the lowest tier. So um, you can save quite a lot of water, especially if you're going to be gardening and need water to reuse that 55 or 60 gallons that you get every time you run the washing machine. So it does take our bills down quite a lot. And the energy piece, um, you know, the, the energy piece is in some ways connected to the water, but is also independent. It's just how much energy we're using to cook and to heat and to light the house. So we try to be very careful about turning the lights off when we're walking out of the room or we cook with a solar oven in the summertime months because then we can access the free energy of the sun and we don't use the oven or the stove as much. And uh, those are some ways that we keep our our electric bills down. We also put coverings on the windows and we're sometimes our house, some people think our house is a bit cool. It's a bit on the cool side, but we like our sweaters and our our comfortable slippers, and we keep ourselves warm that way. Well, you know, if you think about it, it makes sense. I remember uh, I, I grew up in the Catskill Mountains, and I remember how cold it would get in August. Uh, sometimes there would be a little bit of a chill. And uh, I remember once I said to my mother, can't we put the heat on? And this is in August. And she would say, yeah. put a sweater on. Yeah. I mean, you know, totally. why be ridiculous? Why use energy if you don't have to when you could just simply put on a sweater and I just think that that is one simple thing that most people just forget you can do and in your book you even made a comment um, uh, I think you quoted Barack Obama I think it was uh, and I just thought that that was really funny pardon? Barack Obama the candidate as opposed to Barack Obama the president yeah when he was a candidate and um, (laughs) He made a comment that, um, you know, about uh, how he can impact, uh, trying to find it, um, how can he, how his, um, how if he changes his light bulbs, uh, I'm trying to find the exact quote, but I, I can remember it. He said, you know, dealing with the energy crisis is not just going to come down to how many light bulbs I change. It's going to be about something that we all do collectively together. And the reason I chose that is because there there are many simple daily solutions that people can um, can employ in their home spaces, light bulbs and turning off the lights and reducing their energy use. But the bigger solutions around energy are going to be infrastructural and are going to need participation at the highest levels of government and business, which we don't have right now in our country. We have a lot of resistance from the powers that be towards changing the infrastructure towards renewable energy sources. So part of the point of the whole book is that individual actions really do matter. The daily things we do really makes a difference, and collectively they make a huge impact. So so part of what we're trying to inspire people about is to see that the little things you do, like putting on a sweater or turning off a light bulb, they add up collectively to a larger change around how much energy we use, how much energy we can conserve, and how we can push the agenda of our governments and the corporations towards a healthier, more just, more um, survivable future. Mm. You know? It's interesting. I grew up on a farm, and I learned at a very early age that you use what you have, mm. and you get very creative when you have something that you need to do, uh, because if you don't always have the inf- the materials, what have you, that you need, you try to work with 
the things that you do have. And unfortunately, many people in this country do not follow that same way of thinking. But there is such a huge transition that's taking place where people are starting to realize that, you know, we need to conserve water, we need to conserve our energy, uh, and there's so many things that we can do. And as you said, uh, collectively, we can do a lot together. And if everybody does play their part, it's amazing what we can achieve. Uh, and I think there's so many wonderful examples in this book that you give where, as I said earlier uh, at the beginning of the show, you don't necessarily have to have your own organic farm in order to make a difference and contribute. Uh, it could be something such as uh, your own vegetable garden. And the thing is, folks, you're not only doing this for the environment, but you're saving a lot of money uh, as well. And I found that when I teach people about composting, when you demonstrate the financial benefits, that's usually what gets people to pay attention and to uh, check it out and and, uh, give it a shot. And I think that's something that people really need to understand, that this everything that Rachel wrote about is not uh, something that... You know, you need to do this so that we can go back to living in a cave. It's not about that at all. Uh, the quality of life has not deteriorated. It's just living smarter and living in a much more healthier fashion. Uh, and I, I just think that there's so many wonderful examples here of how you can do that and still have a very high quality of life. Can I speak to that question of, like, going backwards or about living in this kind of contracted way? There's a couple of things that you said about growing up on a farm and learning that um, to use what you have. And the subtitle of the book is called Heirloom Skills for Sustainable Living. So what we're trying to get at with that idea is that a a lot of these skills that are in the book are things that people have been doing for a long, long, long time in for, you know, farming, obviously, but, you know, canning preserves and taking care of animals and just living in a way that's kind of more related to the place where you're at and um, taking care of the resources around you. And we've lost a lot of that in our culture as things got faster and faster and more and more convenient. We lost our connection to these essentials of life, to our food, to our water, to our energy sources. And so... Part of the inspiration for the book is to remind people that these are these are these skills are not rocket science. These are not things that are super hard to learn, and um, once you've mastered them, they become they can become a matter of course. And rather than thinking of this as this kind of contracted depression era, you know, oh, there's not enough to go around. What we have really found is that living this way has brought us an incredible abundance of fresh food and new relationships with people and animals and an encounter with bees and people who in our neighborhoods get really excited by what we're doing so we've really started building relationships at a really different level and there's something also that happens when you do things yourself when you when you learn a skill when you start from scratch and you go I'm going to figure out how to do this and I'm going to I'm going to make this happen there's a there's a quality of satisfaction that you just don't get when you go and buy something at the store and so there's all these really positive um benefits and effects from from learning to do things ourselves from sharing the labor with others which 
which these are old qualities that used to be in our communities where there'd be a barn raising or people would um it would be time to harvest the the food in the field and everyone would help one family on one day and another family on another day and there was a sense of camaraderie and connectivity that we've also lost in our very yeah the com- the sense of community is really gone and it's interesting in certain communities there is a resurgence and uh especially in places like Brooklyn mm-hmm. Brooklyn New York of all places uh it's interesting how it's gone back and forth and you know now it's back yep. um it went from the place to be maybe about 50 years ago to the place that nobody wanted to be and now the people that live there um you know they really understand that they have a responsibility not only towards uh the not not with just the relationship with the earth but towards one another mm-hmm. in order to keep that sense of community and you have community gardens you have people that actually talk to their neighbors you have people that just do things uh just because they want to be connected to one another and it's great to see uh and it's it's something that I see in many different communities throughout the United States where you know that small ma- that small town mentality has come back and there is more of a sense of community and when you have that people tend to talk and what happens when people talk people look out for one another and in essence it does help to reduce crime because if you have people that are constantly looking out for one another guess what you have more communication and I think that that's something that's very effective. And it's unfortunate that there are some people that are in positions of power that don't see uh, different components of the community, such as the community garden, as a key component to that community's well-being. And, um, you know, hopefully we'll see more of that as people start embracing the changes. Well, it's been our in our experience in doing the research for the book and in talking to people that in communities all around the country, people are coming together around urban agriculture and urban land use issues, and this this question of food security, how to actually have good healthy food in their neighborhoods, and some of this comes out of um, an awareness of the uh, toxicity of the the industrial food system, but some of it is also absolutely coming out of the fact that people are underemployed or unemployed and don't have a lot of money and are trying to make things happen for themselves. But the the community piece is is vibrant and alive in a lot of places throughout the country, and um, this is not just sort of a random smattering of different people in their backyards raising chickens. There's really a lot, a lot of people who are seeing the, the intelligence behind localizing food sources, coming into relationship to the water, the energy, the waste management questions, how to take care of ourselves, how to relate to one another. It's, 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 um, it's human survival. It's well, That's at this point, it, there is a survival question. I mean, in, in most parts of our country, we're, we're not there yet, but the, econo- the economic situation, the ecological situation, the climate change issue, the peak oil issue, all of these things are converging to say we really do need to find another way to live. And we we each we each have a part to play. And in, in this country, we individually, per, the per capita consumption rate is higher than any other country in the world. And sometimes people say, well, they're using more in China and India. And while it is true, like in the total amounts, more is being used in those countries per capita, per person, we are the largest consumers on the planet and so each one of us um, 
can um, can make a choice to look at ourselves and say, well, what can I do without, or what can I do less with less of, or what what can I stop buying, or what can I make myself, or how can I teach my children how to live more closely related to the seasons and the cycles of the year, and etc. All those questions can we can all ask ourselves those questions and. One of the things we really like to say to people is that we should start small and we should start where we are. So don't expect to live on an urban farm in one season. You know, you get to take a few steps every year and you go, I'm going to take on, maybe you're going to take on the composting toilet, although that's very rarely the first thing people do, but if you're going to take on, I'm going to grow some food for myself and my family and you experiment with that. You figure out what kind of space you have to do it and what kind of interest you have in it and you learn a little bit from local people or just from the experiment of it and then the next year, you say, "I'm going to learn to can my produce, and I'm going to, I'm going to find a tree in my neighborhood that nobody's picking the apples off of, and I'm going to pick those apples this year, and I'm going to give some to my neighbors and keep some for myself." So, step by step, we find different things we can do to involve ourselves in this different way of living, which which kind of changes our consciousness towards who we are in relationship to the earth. That we're we can be sustainers and stewards. We don't have to just be enmeshed in this system that is basically destroying the web of life. You know, it's interesting that you mentioned picking apples that you see because there are many different parks and just plants and vegetables and so on and so forth uh, that people will see. And, you know, um, and I'm not saying that you should go into somebody's property, but if uh, you're on a path in the park and you happen to see an apple tree, um, you know, the apples are basically going to fall and um, wind up being composted. Yeah, exactly. Uh, And it's interesting how we're groomed as a society to think that unless something's packaged and it's approved by the USDA or whomever, that it's unsafe to eat. And the thing is is that there are many different plants uh, in the wild that are perfectly edible, and it, it's just that we have become accustomed to looking at our food in a particular way. Uh, and another thing that's interesting is, is that just the way that we've evolved, when the transition took place between the medieval world and the new world, everything had to be whatever the new world was doing because people wanted to do away with the old. And then it was interesting once our country became really industrialized and then um, the Second World War took place, you had people that were just looking to save as much time as possible and multitask. And we've gotten to the point where we still don't have enough time, but the quality of our life has really gone downhill. I mean, people think that, oh, well, if you eat in the finest restaurants all the time and, uh, you know, some of these Hollywood celebrities that you see on TV, what have you, that they're living it up. Honestly, they're not. I know many people that live a very humble life that don't have a lot of money, but they grow their own vegetables. They are able to reduce the amount of energy consumption because of just the way that they live. Uh, And, you know, once again, maybe they don't live in a palace, but they're happy and they're healthy because the quality of the foods that they eat are right from the garden. And on top of that, uh, just their existence. They are spending time with one another instead of uh, just being glued to the TV. They're 
taking a break from the stresses of work and actually opting to go for a walk with their family or just doing something that's healthy and productive and just instead of just sitting on a, on the couch like a lump watching you know whatever is on the on yeah. the television well and i would say oh, sorry go ahead i would say that this whole movement is related to other movements that are kind of what you're talking about the slow mm. food movement and the transition movement which are really about reevaluating um the value of what we do in life and what we want to be doing and slowing down and um you know, peeling back. There's a lot of layers that are put on us by the culture, things that we should want, things we should do, the pace that we should keep, which um, are pretty much out of out of the natural cycles. You know, we should be like pounding, pounding, pounding day after day after day, doing this, that, or the other thing. And there's some part of this lifestyle that for me has gotten me much more tuned into what's happening in the world around me, what's what's happening inside of myself, like how am I responding to my daily life? Can I keep, you know, working at this pace or do I need to, like, sit back and rest or take a walk, as you say, you know? And right now it's turning into autumn. The quality of the air, the quality of the light is totally different. You feel the day is getting shorter. It's kind of like this excitement. Oh, it's going to be winter soon. and We'll get to sit in front of the fire and do less and you know, tell stories, and it's just a very different time of year than summer, which is so much heat and energy and life and things bursting out of the ground. So something about um, getting more in touch with what's really happening in the world is part of, for me, one of the qualities of this lifestyle that I love so much and that um, helps me feel more connected to my place, more connected to where I live, more connected to the things that I do every day. And I think that's definitely the icing on the cake. But for many that, people uh, that are out there, especially people that are losing their homes, losing their jobs, yeah, yeah. the big picture is money. Yeah. And the reality yeah. is, is that, as I said before, you don't need to live in a cave, but you just do things smarter. And yeah. one of the things that you talk about, Rachel, is how you recycle your gray water. Now, this has been a major no-no for so many years, and you talk about it very um, in great detail about how to do it so that it's not only smart but safe. Yeah, it's definitely safe. There's definitely certain things you need to do to um, to be careful. And just so people know, if you don't know what gray water is, it's the water that comes out of your bathtub and shower or out of your laundry. It's the kind of lightly used water that you can reuse in your garden or um, yeah, your landscaping. And um, here where we live in California, there's a recent law that was passed that um, makes it legal and permissible to divert the laundry water into the landscape. And, and again, in, in California where we don't have enough water and where we have so many people in so many months where there's no rain at all, it becomes very important to use the water more than once. And um, you really get a lot of water out of a laundry system or out of a bath and shower, gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons and gallons. And um, you can keep a lot of trees and um, plants alive. You can use gray water at the roots of certain edible plants, best to be used at the roots of things like fruit trees or um the plants where the the things you would eat are far from the roots. Like you don't want to use gray water for beets or carrots or potatoes, anything that will absorb the gray water. You don't want to do that. But you can use it for your tomatoes or for your squash plants. And um, 
you don't want to drink gray water and you don't want to splash it on the leaves of your plants, but it is, and you want to use soap that is good for the earth, that's biocompatible, um, so that you're not depositing um, toxins or salts into the soil. But it is a, it's a practice that's um, easily done and really yields a lot, a lot of water. And it's interesting the way that you have the, the way that you have it pictured in the book. You actually have the water being diverted to a section of your garden where it appears to be filtered. That's pretty clever. Yeah, there are different filters you can place on the piping that comes out of the laundry or the shower that can filter out some of the impurities. Like in the laundry, there's the lint that comes from the laundry. You can mm-hmm. filter that out so that's not going into the ground. And um, you, can, you can also set up a system where you divert it to a number of different places in the garden, and you can actually choose at the washing machine. You can flip a switch. and You can just flip the switch and say, okay, today's laundry is going to the apple tree, or today's laundry is going to my bed of squash plants, or today's laundry water is going to the, the, um, the flower garden. So you can divert the water to specific spots, which is and clever. If, yeah. How much money would you say, or how much, how many gallons of water would you say that you save by doing this as opposed to the typical household that doesn't? Well, it really depends on how much you use. Now, my family of three, we do probably two loads of laundry a week, which I think is a pretty low average for most American households, so that's about 100 gallons of water a week that wow. we can divert back into the landscape just from the laundry, and that is, that's a lot of water. That's a lot of water. So um, we keep many different garden patches alive all, all through our very, very dry summer where we don't see rain for 120 days, 140 days. We can keep things alive. And then we have, on top of that, the bath and shower has been diverted also into the garden, and and that we use more, obviously. Um, There's three of us, and so let's say we take eight or nine showers or baths during the week, and that all goes out into the garden as well. And um, it's a lot of water. Was it expensive to uh, hook up up the... Yeah. Was it expensive to do, and did, did it take a lot of work? It actually didn't. One of the one of my great weaknesses as a homesteader is that I'm not great at building projects. So I can think them through and I can know what to do, but then actually getting to them is a bit of a challenge mm-hmm. for me. So for me, who's not inclined in this way, um, I found them fairly simple to do. The laundry especially is a very easy thing to divert the water. The, the laundry at the back of a washing machine, there's a pipe that goes down the drain, and it's not attached it's just it's just stuck into a drain pipe so you can easily take that pipe out and attach it to a garden hose which can take it to i like to catch the water in a barrel and then uh, i tricked out the barrel so that i had a spigot and attached a hose so the water goes into the barrel it rests a little bit because you don't want to put hot water if you're using hot water with your laundry you don't want to put that directly into your garden because you'll kill your plants no you let it sit and get cool and then you can turn on the bigot and then just walk around the garden watering that's how i do it it's pretty um low tech like i did not um because of how my house is set up i didn't do an automatic um laundry to landscape design where the water just goes automatically into the ground i actually catch it in the barrel so that cost me them it cost me the the cost of the barrel which somebody gave me for about ten dollars and the little plumbing fittings that turned the the back of the pipe on the laundry, and 
that connected it to the hose, it was another like $4. So that was a super cheap, easy diversion. There are other, you know, if you're going to actually lay pipe and put different spigots, it's going to cost you a little bit more for those um, pieces of hardware, but not a whole lot. I think you can do the whole thing for probably $100. And a lot of those things are listed in our book, the different um, hardware and equipment that you'll need. And um, I did actually hire somebody to help me with the water system from the bathtub and the shower. Because of how one of the things about these systems is you need to let gravity work for you, or else you mm-hmm. have to attach the, um, you know, or else you have to put a pump to pump the water uphill. So if your laundry system is higher than your garden, then gravity will bring the water down from where you where you use it into the garden. If your um, garden is higher than the water source, you're going to have to pump it uphill. So that's a less ideal situation, because so, then you're going to have to use um, probably electricity, or you're going to have to get a solar pump, which sometimes works and sometimes doesn't, depending on your climate, right? Like if you have tons and tons of rain and you don't have a pump that stores energy, you're going to need to use electricity. So those are some of the um, complexities in setting up a, a system that's, that is, works best with gravity. But it doesn't take very long to set it up, and it isn't very expensive. I'd say under $100 you can do it for and all of those things are listed in the book, all the different um, the pieces that you would need to set something like that up. You said that um, for a family of three, you do two loads of laundry a week. And I'm, I'm just trying to um, create a visual here. Now, you have three people... It's 100, did you say it's 100 gallons for the week or for each load? It's about 50 gallons a load of water. So, and that we do not have a um, super efficient um, washing machine. So um, if you have a very water-efficient machine, you'll, you'll use less water, which is good. And I also want to point out something. Um, I know that I personally use certified organic Castile soap that um, I use for my laundry, and one of the great things about using Castile soap is that it doesn't suds up a lot. It cleans very, very well, but there aren't a lot of suds, so you don't need so much water to uh, thoroughly clean the clothing. Um, It doesn't take that much water at all, and um, I actually have one of those energy-efficient washing machines that does a great job of drying the clothing as much as possible before it either gets hung on the line or uh, popped in the dryer. And um, that was something that I thought was very appealing. And it's interesting, um, when you look at other washing machines, washing machines are a great invention, but the amount of water that they use is really a lot. And you figure, say if there were 10 families, that were to do exactly what you were doing. I mean, it, 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 500 gallons does not seem like a lot, but imagine if you multiplied that by, say, right, exactly. another, you know, another thousand people. Well, and that's also week after week after week, hundreds and hundreds of gallons. And then, right, if you bring it to scale, if it starts being not just ten families, but a whole neighborhood, or you know, as it as we. As we bring these practices to scale, we're talking about saving an extraordinary amount of water, energy, fossil fuel, all of those things, 
start. Um, it, it's, it's just huge. We all use a lot of stuff every day. <laughs> we really do. And especially with the economy, I think one of the benefits of the economy being in the tank is the fact that people are becoming very frugal. They don't want to spend money on anything that they don't have to. So if you think about all of the things that Rachel has written in her book, uh, I mean, you name it, she's got it in there. There are so many different ways that you can save money. Absolutely. And the thing is, is that the more money that you save, the more money that you can pay off different bills or uh, invest in other things or just buy yourself something. And it's just amazing how when you start putting these things together, different um, initiatives that uh, you can um, incorporate into your own home environment, the amount of money that you save is tremendous. It is. And you know, once you set up your systems, once you set up your garden or once you set up your chicken coop and get your chickens, once you really have established things, it really is quite, um, you really can save a lot of money. You absolutely can. Now, um, one of the other questions that I wanted, uh, that I had that I wanted to talk to you about uh, concerns your uses for beeswax. I just mm-hmm. love that. Now, that's something Ruby wrote, and she loves that one, too. There really are a lot of different things that you can do with your beeswax other than um, making candles. And um, we are we are both beekeepers. My partner is a beekeeper. Ruby's a beekeeper herself. And um, the wax and the honey really are the things you get from bees that are just valuable, beautiful, useful, and... Um, yeah, I'm just looking at it right now in the book. Unstick a drawer, lubricate window sashes, wax wood, preserve bronze, condition a wooden cutting board. I need to do that. I better do that. Preserve a patina, <laughs> waterproof leather, use as a resist for batik, wax thread for easy threading of a needle, make crayons. Yeah, there's many things. Yeah, people forgot that crayons aren't, uh, were not one made out of petroleum products. They were, yeah, they were actually made from beeswax, and now I don't even know what. The, I guess they're made. They're from made paraffin. out of petroleum products. Yeah, and they the are. thing is, is that think about what your kids are using. They're coming. Their skin is coming direct, directly into contact with these crayons, and I don't know the last time I smelled a box of crayons, but uh, I remember. Uh, well, Recently, I should say, I smelled a box of crayons. I opened up a brand-new box, and the smell is just, it really hits you, especially if you're not used to working with crayons. And it's like, whoa, where did this come from? And uh, it wasn't the same box of crayons that I remember. Uh, And it's just amazing when you think about all the things that your kids come into contact with, do you really want your kids to be playing with different items that are made from petroleum? Yeah. I like that you keep bringing up the children. I find as a mom that um, there's so much benefit to raising my daughter in this way, to her learning about how to take care of animals and to seeing a chicken lay an egg and to getting into a beeville and going out in the bee yard with her dad and just, you know, watching a bean grow and picking tomatoes in the middle of the summer. Like there's all these things that she gets that give her this really embodied sense of um, belonging and appreciation for 
what it takes to to live really and she she's becoming a very responsible responsive person i think as a result of being around um her dad and i who spend a lot of our time on these tasks and who care about these things so much and she's really seeing that this is a a valuable way to live and um i think that that's also partly as we're stepping towards sustainability in our culture that the more we can educate our children towards it they are going to they're going to take further steps beyond what we can but that this becomes sort of the baseline for them that you know eggs come from chickens <laughs> and we feed our chickens and we take care of our chickens and this is how they behave like these are these are great lessons for um for the children for their present and also for the future well they're the ones that are going to be taking care of everything when we can't do it anymore yeah, uh, especially after we're long gone but uh I think that if we really want to make the changes that we need to, the kids are the ones who really need the education the most. Because one of the things that I found as an educator is if I was successful in presenting the information so that kids could understand it, grasp it, and resonate with it, they would basically nag the hell out of the parents and, uh, you know, mission accomplished. Same thing with composting. I remember uh, every now and then I would get a parent that would say, oh, you know, I don't want to do that. Oh, we have somebody that does that or some excuse. And it didn't matter how hard I tried to explain to them how much money they would save by composting. They didn't really care. It was just another job to them. So what I would do is I would have the kids uh, reach into my worm bin, name the worms, and then say, how would you like to have worms of your own? And lo and behold, you know, when kids want something, they really know how to nag the parents. Uh, and if, if you explain to them what to do, they will tell their parents, hey, mom, dad, you know, shouldn't you be doing this? Shouldn't you compost that? Uh, it's like with the seatbelt law. Mom, aren't you supposed to have your seatbelt on? Dad, you know, where's your seatbelt? The law says you're supposed to have your seatbelt on. And uh, it, it's just really interesting to watch kids when you empower them and you treat them with respect and also give them the understanding that they really deserve instead of just giving them an order but actually empowering them. I think it's a big difference. Well, you know, we find that the children and and younger Young adults really are appreciating this book. They love the pictures. Uh, my neighbor across the street said he woke up at 6 o'clock one morning and his son was reading about how to build a cob bench. So there's and, – and as they get older, the kids, they understand that we're up against some serious, significant challenges, and they want to be able to show up for them. They want to do good. They want to do the right thing. And a book like this gives so many concrete examples of things that anybody can do at home, at school, at work, that you can teach one another, that you can do um, together. And it, it's very gratifying for for young people to not feel disempowered, as you're saying, but to feel powerful, that their actions make a difference, that um, it matters how we live. And so we would love to see this book in classrooms and universities and community centers like really being used as a as a resource to teach well, it's written it, teach it's written like people. an encyclopedia yeah it's it it's a, pretty encyclopedic it's pretty comprehensive I have it really say. is it really is yeah we worked hard to really try to hit every angle that we could um think really um related and 
there, there's one there's one piece that we added that we don't find in any other book on homesteading, and we really did do a lot of research as we were writing, and that's the piece that's about how we take care of ourselves. And I just want to speak to that for a minute because I think that um, sometimes when we really care about the earth and we're aware of the kind of damage that we're doing, we can get very stressed out and anxious or angry or try to save the world on our own. And there's a quality to that um, that kind of attitude that's really weighs heavily on people. And so we really feel that it's important that we also view ourselves as precious, non-renewable resources, that we're, it's important for us to stay healthy in our minds and our bodies and our spirits so we can do this good work. So there is a whole section in the book that's about ways we can um, refill the well, you know, really um, recharge ourselves. And some of them are simple, like exercise or meditation or taking a walk in nature. And some of them are more about art practice or writing practice, things that Ruby and I have used over and over in our lives to help us feel better and to express some of the feelings that we have about what's happening in our world. And we really um, encourage people to find a practice that, that works for you, something that helps you feel better, that helps you clear your mind, that helps you feel like you can take your, your best step forward into the world that you're trying to create. So. I mean, if, if you think about it, our uh, the, the way that our country is even situated, uh, the way that our forefathers uh, kind of sculpted the way that our country exists with uh, the way that the work week is, uh, just having a day of rest, so to speak, uh, it doesn't matter what your religious belief is, just the fact that you need to rest your mind, you need to clear your head, stop working, we're not robots. And um, if you mix it up a little bit, I mean, even throughout the work day, it's very important to take that little bit of a break, whether it's a lunch break or just even a few minutes just to clear your head because it's amazing how much that does for you. It enables you to refocus, to ground yourself all over again, especially if you have a lot going on at work. And, you know, I, I think that it is a very important part that most people tend to neglect. I agree. So, now, and another question that I have for you, especially since it is the fall and here in the Northeast especially, it's harvest season as yeah. well as in many other parts of the world, yeah. people are harvesting seeds. What yeah. advice do you have for people when they are harvesting seeds? Uh, what can they do to dry their seeds, and how should they store their seeds for the following growing season? Oh, those are great questions. So, you know, good ways to dry the seeds are to have screens that you can lay the seeds out on and leave them in a in a warm, dry place where they're not going to get toasted or roasted by the sun, but just so that they can dry out and keep them inside and in a dry place and give them some time to really to get dry. And then I store seeds in small little envelopes that I just manila envelopes. Sometimes people use plastic. Sometimes people use little um, containers for junk um, mail envelopes. Yeah, I use the little envelopes. I just bought a <laughs> box of envelopes at Staples, and you know they're small, and I can write on them. And uh, oh, excuse my phone. I and, get. Um, uh, I was going to say I get a lot of junk mail, and I found that it's very helpful when. Uh, you can't get off these lists no matter what you do, but what you can do is take the return envelope there you go. and utilize that. Because there you go. 
I mean, it's fine. Brilliant. That's the way we like to think. Absolutely. <laughs> I yeah, don't throw that stuff away. There's nowhere to throw it. You might as well reuse it. Absolutely. Well, there, there was a guy that I knew that he used to take the envelopes and he used to send it right back to the company, and uh, he found it didn't really get him anywhere. And I told him, I said, why don't you just take the envelopes and use them for other things, uh, like your receipts, um, for seeds, for whatever it may be. Yeah. And he's like, yeah. oh, that's a good idea. Yeah. So. And seed saving is a beautiful practice. It's a great way to get involved um, in in this movement. And you know, the seed, the, the genetic seed stock is at threat to, to different corporate entities like Monsanto that's trying to patent the gen- genetic code. Like we need to preserve seeds that come from plants that grow well in every region, in every locality. So people getting involved in that project is a great way to participate in this um, reconnecting that we're doing to these um, really essential human practices. And like in Richmond, there's a beautiful seed lending library where people are saving seeds, and in the beginning of the season, they can take some seeds and use them in their gardens, and then when they harvest, they bring back more seeds. So it keeps recapitulating itself, and it's an open resource that um, anybody can use, and that's something that can be done in any locality. And doing doing a practice like this with other people, like you say, the tomato seeds, and I'll save the radish seeds, and you save the corn. Each person does their piece, and then we all share. Because you know, like one one ear one ear of corn has hundreds and hundreds of seeds, right? You don't need that many in a small garden, but you can share it with your neighbors, and then everybody's growing corn that does well in your location, and uh, keeps recapitulating itself. I actually once started an initiative amongst um, a bunch of master gardeners um, that I'm friends with because. Uh, we figured, well, there's only so many tomatoes that you use, so many herbs that you're going to use, so many vegetables that you may plant, and <clears throat> the amount that you're actually going to eat uh, is not going to be a lot, and there's only so much that you can either freeze or can, I mean, right. depending upon right. what you're looking to do. So we started a veggie swap where basically okay. once every every other week we would get together, kind of like what the co-ops do, but... Or the CSAs do, but uh, this is just basically uh, something where it was just a group effort where we would get together, meet at a particular parking lot, and alternate it so that uh, it wasn't uh, too far for everybody, kind of mix it up a little bit. And then, you know, you, br- you brought what you had, and you basically took what you needed, and uh, if there was anything left over, we donated it to yeah. a food uh, um yeah. The food um, kitchen. Food yeah, food bank. Thank you. Absolutely. That's a great way to go. And there's definitely a lot of food exchanges going on. There's underground markets in places like San Francisco where people who, once you start growing, even on a little piece of land, you, you do start seeing that you, you can grow a lot more than you need. And so one of the efforts in localizing our food sources is to start sharing the bounty and to really, like, giving back what it is you're not using. And that creates, again, that sense of camaraderie and community and people taking care of each other that's so markedly missing in most of our culture. So these are just all really simple things to set up. People gravitate towards them, and they have an energy of their own that is um, contagious. Yeah, and I think it's also very important because it contributes to the quality of our life. Uh, if you're eating foods that are organically grown, and especially uh, people that um, really take gardening very seriously, they're going to take care of their land. They're going to take a lot of pride 
and how they grow things, it's not a matter of, oh, let's just grow something for the sake of it. Uh, let's use the cheapest things that are out there and not care about what we're putting into the environment, but you know, people actually care. So it makes a world of difference. And it also ties back into what you stated in your book, which is everybody can take the, some of these principles and apply them no matter where you live. So whether you, you're located in the United States, in Canada, Australia, uh, you know, Africa, it doesn't matter where you are, you can do these things and help other people in your community to incorporate some of the methods that um, are written in the book because Absolutely. you do save a lot of money and it also does improve uh, your own quality of life as well as your children's. Yeah, I mean, I like to say that these are like, uh, these solutions are local in scale, but they are global in scope. Everybody can benefit from them. Everyone can do them. There's always different issues in gardening in, in every different location, the climate, the terrain, all of that is different, and you can learn about that in the place where you live, but the principles that we're talking about are are the same everywhere and um, can, can um, be enacted to not only improve our own lives, but to improve in general the the larger global condition that we find ourselves in. And one of the things that is taking place right now with the harvest is people are starting to gather their herbs, and you have a whole section on uh, creating your own medicine chest from the herbs. Uh, do you have any advice uh, for people that either have an herb garden or are looking to start an herb garden next year that would like to incorporate these principles into their own their own home environment? Well, I, I think it depends on what you're trying to accomplish. If you want to have herbs for eating, then you should look into whichever culinary herbs you feel like you want to grow. And if you want to have medicinal herbs, um, there are definitely certain things to learn about every every herbal remedy and you should do your research on what you want them for and how to grow them and then how to harvest them and how to prepare them but there are some simple preparations that we we provided in the book from tincturing to making salves to making poultices which again are heirloom skills old-fashioned remedies which um, your grandma knew and her mother and um they're very simple to learn. It's very easy to tincture an herb. You soak it in glycerin or vodka for six weeks, and then you decant the liquid and you have a medicine. Um, how you use it is another question, and that's something you really should read up on or talk to a local herbalist about. And um, But you can grow many, many herbs in your garden that you can use to make um, simple, effective medicines. Catnip is a great one that you can tincture, and it's a great gentle um, sleep aid, for example. And one of the great things about herbs that most people don't realize is that the plants are uh, plants that attract pollinators, especially butterflies. So, uh, and another great thing about herbs is that many of them are perennial. So if you plan out your garden landscape and you incorporate your garden, it's amazing how not only beautiful it can be, but, you know, it's multifunctional. Rachel, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Folks, we are out of time, but please pick up a copy of Urban Homesteading by Rachel Kaplan and Kay Ruby Bloom. 
It's available at your favorite bookstore or on urban-homesteading.org. Once again, the website is urban-homesteading.org. Thank you so much for tuning in. This has been June Stoyer with the Organic View Radio Show. Have a great afternoon.